Good morning. I'll be reading out of John 4, verses 27 through 45, and it's on page 1057 of the Pew Bibles. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that, they, that he was talking to a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left the, her water jar and went into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. The disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his works. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told, me that, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet is no, has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that, they, that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast for they too had gone to feast. Heavenly Father, Lord, it's just amazing the, uh, the testimony of one and uh, the impact that it can have on an area. So Father, I just pray that you'd help us to, uh, um, to be bold, to speak, to uh, open our mouth when uh, you put these words uh, on our mouth to share with people because that's the only way these seeds go out. So, Father, I just pray, Lord, that uh, you'd uh, bless Eric as he comes up to uh, share what it is that you've put on his heart about this uh, passage to, to share with us, Father. And I just pray that you'd open our ears to hear. We thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thanks, Dave. Good morning. It's awesome to be here. Thank you for worshiping today. So my son Nico, I'm sure most of you know him, he has quite a, um, he's on a power trip right now in our house, four-year-old power trip. He's, uh, he's in that stage where um, Sleeping at night, sleeping in his bed is is far and few between, and so we've we've uh, he's 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 asked for us to sleep in our room and my bed in my spot, and that's not going to work. So we've set up a little bed on the side next to Carla, so he can uh, have a spot, so I can have my spot and not sleep on the couch. Well, the other night he uh, it was a late night. I was climbing in, and I just started to drift, and then. I hear his door open in his bedroom, his little feet coming out, and then he wakes me. Can I sleep in your bed? No, you can't sleep in my bed. You can sleep in your little bed. So we got him all fixed up and tucked in, start to go to sleep, and then I hear his little voice say, Papa, can I have a drink of water? <laughs> and I said, yes, of course. So I get up. Get him some water. He drinks it. His parched little throat, you know. And I tuck him down, and, and, and all, all is well. He goes to sleep, and I go to sleep. And as I was meditating on this particular part of Scripture, that came to mind as, as really a, 
kind of an example of what happened at the, at the well with the Samaritan woman and, and God, I mean, Christ. You know, she realized her need for the drink of water, and it wasn't the cup, it was the living water. And while I gave Nico a drink of water from the tap, um, he relied on me to provide it. Which is pretty amazing, the responsibility I have as, as his father. But Jesus, he just, that's who he is. That's what he does. He gives it away for free. So my aim for this sermon is to show how Jesus giving the woman at the well his living water caused a chain of events that stirred a community to believe in Jesus that became a life-changing movement from heaven. And I will present the sermon in th with three points. Jesus sees the person, Jesus sees the harvest, and Jesus is the Savior. So let me pray. Lord, you save without limits. And it's amazing that we sit here in that space, that you've saved us beyond anything that we could have ever imagined, and we're able to gather like this. I pray that now would be a time where we were reminded of that moment where you saved us. And I pray that you would cause us a deep uh, affection for others to know this. And I pray, Lord, that you would move mightily by your spirit in this, in this Vermont town, in, in, our, in our New England region, in our country, in our world, Lord, that you would save sinners and they would see that you are the living water. So I pray that you... Bless my words, keep me focused and precise, and Lord, change hearts, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So Dave read um, John 4, 27 through 45. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it again, because I just think getting the word out again, and then we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna see how Jesus sees the person so just then his disciples came back. Then they marveled that what he was talking with the women, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the women left the water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who, you t who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. And he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are Yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For, they are, for the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told them all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay and with them. And he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his, home, in his own hometown.
So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they had too had gone to the feast. So before we dive into Jesus sees the person, I just want to back it up to what Pastor Aaron was talking about last week and just kind of recap, because I think it's important that, that we're at a, we're at a, a cataclysmic moment that Jesus has with this woman. So Jesus has made a compelling argument with a Samaritan woman at the well in verses 21 through 24 on true worship. He asserts salvation will be from the Jews, not on a mountain, not in Jerusalem, but in spirit and in truth. He supports this assertion or this assertion with the fact that he is the Messiah who she is speaking with, the prophet, the one who is explaining everything to her. Let me start reading in verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that, the, I know that Messiah is coming. He, is, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. But Jesus said to her, I who you speak to am he. So then comes this dramatic shift. And we see that the disciples come on the scene and they're marveling at what's going on. What, what is, why is he talking with this woman? Why, why doesn't someone say something to him? Why are you talking with her? They were astonished. Why were they astonished? Jesus was, speak, was a man speaking with a woman. That just didn't happen in this, in this culture during this time, in this context, unless he was looking for proposition. Jesus was a rabbi, and rabbis don't speak with women alone. They were seen as, as, a, less, as a lesser class. But what is, what is just amazing is that Jesus was the Messiah. And at that moment, she gets it. And at that moment, they're not getting it. They're not seeing what's happening here. Then we read the response that occurred by the Samaritan woman after her encounter with Jesus in verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Receiving him as her living water gave her refreshment for her soul. This moment was a life-changing moment. She was living and turning in repentance from her ways to this newness of life. She left her old life, her water pot, and turned to the community she was ostracized from to share with this living water. She couldn't hold herself back. She became an evangelist. In that moment, she went from an unbeliever to an evangelist. She invited the whole town to experience Jesus by going to meet him. Why? Because Jesus told her everything she ever did. And he loved her regardless of it. Just let that sink in for a second. You see, she kept her closet locked and all the skeletons were inside. The, her, her skeletons of immorality and the unmarried relationships. But see, those skeletons weren't hindrances for Jesus from engaging with her, but rather the points with which he connected with her at the most painful place with his compassion. He opened the closet. And his light shined in and it exposed those most, those most vulnerable places in her heart. And yet, his arms were opened, opened wide to receive her with his living water of forgiveness. Which begs the question that she puts in a tentative sense to the crowd, can this be the Christ? And their, their response was powerfully similar to hers. It was supernatural, uncontrollable. Verse 30 says, they went out of the town and were coming to him. 
As we consider this scripture, let me ask a few self-evaluating questions to you. What is Jesus, or, or how does Jesus see you? Do, you? do you think, really think, that Jesus knows you? Does he know your concerns, your considerations? What makes you happy, sad, angry? How many times have you considered what you are thinking or doing or saying will go unnoticed by him? Especially if you feel you've wronged him or believe, excuse me, or someone else, wronged someone else. If we think, I need to answer, I need to answer this question in a way that shows that I'm together, you don't believe Jesus knows you. If we answer, I believe I can get away with keeping my thoughts and actions hidden, you're missing out on the grace of Jesus. These honest questions require honest answers. Do you have skeletons? Like the women at the well, Jesus knew her skeletons. And if we're honest, we all have something lurking in the dark spaces of our life that we keep a lockdown on. But they're haunting us. Remember, the, the woman at the well, Jesus saw her without shame for having multiple men in her life. No ethnic, no ethnic condemnation for being a Samaritan. No devaluing her as a woman. He knows everything you've ever done. But Jesus sees you for you. And you're loved. There's no condemnation. And see, here's the beauty of the grace that I was mentioning from Jesus, is that he gives you the grace to evict the skeletons with power and uncertainty because Jesus is the all-knowing, all-powerful God who supplies you with a new identity. If you are struggling with skeletons, harboring them, Jump in and swim in this living water with the Samaritans, with the woman at the well, because this water is poured out for you. Remember this scripture from John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever comes to me shall never thirst. The gospel redirects passions and becomes a new motivator. With Jesus, you belong to him because Jesus knows you regardless of your sins and he loves you regardless of them and he empowers you to repent and turn from them. The spirit of grace, the spirit gives the grace so right now we can turn from skeletons. You are loved. You are wanted. You get to share, and, and as a result, you get to share the truth that Jesus has for you and sent out because of the living water that he has offered you just like the woman at the well. So, to illustrate this point, I'm, I'm going to ask something that, that, uh, that may make you feel a little uncomfortable. But just bear with me, because I'm going to do it too. I want you to take out your bulletin or a scratch piece of paper, and I want you to write down, if God is illuminating in your heart a skeleton that you've been holding on to, just write it down. It's something that keeps you from believing Christ, something that you feel that you're ashamed of, something that you feel God is ashamed of. You see, the woman at the well, when Jesus asked her the question, who are your husbands? Or go get your husband. She says, I have no husbands. She spoke 
the skeleton, and it's written down here. So this isn't just an exercise to make you busy. It's an actual, it's a, it's a, it's a confessional moment that the Spirit's empowering you to do. And it's a gift. So write just, just a skeleton. Okay, so mine's here. So we're going to come back to this at the end of the service. And we'll pray over this. So Jesus sees the person... And then as, the, as, we, as we follow the narrative, he's going to see the harvest. As the intimate moment between Jesus and the woman has crescendoed, the disciples enter the scene. They respond to what they witness in awe and wonderment, but the disciples are pinned between two worlds. On the one hand, they are witnessing Jesus at, the, at work in the life of a woman at the well. They are witness Jesus' transformative power of breaking down socioeconomic, gender, and ethnic boundaries. And it says they marveled. Then, on the other hand, they are worried about Jesus' physical needs. You see, he's been traveling. It's hot. They're hung he's hungry, and they went into town to, to pick him up a sandwich. And most likely, Jesus is hungry. But they still didn't get yeah, they still didn't get it that Jesus was focused and in submitted to the, to the will of his true needs. It says here, "Rabbi, eat," the disciples said in the last of verse 31. Then Jesus dropped one of those mystery statements, "I have food to eat that you don't know about." And if I, were a fly, if I were a fly on a rock watching this go down, I can imagine how perplexed and confused the, the disciples are as they're, as they're hearing him say this. Has anyone brought him something to eat? But this was an opportunity for Jesus to teach as he laid out the truth and the meaning of what was taking place with the woman at the well and the people of Samaria. Let me read again verse 34 through 38. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. So what's Jesus teaching? Captivated to do the will of the Father, Jesus was taken back at the spiritual farming that needed taking place. He saw the landscape before him and the Samaritan people, mainly a mix of Jewish and, and, and Gentiles. But they were walking in a spiritual dehydration. They were limited to the man-made style of worship, blended with... Uh, as, as Jews, as some of the Jews worshiped the God of the Old Testament, but lacked the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit and the Messiah to save. It seems furthermore that Jesus was anticipating the disciples' response as he acknowledged the harvest principle of time and place. In verse 35, he responded to his own question with urgency. And I can just picture him maybe getting behind the disciples and he's like behind them and he's saying, look, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for a harvest. Remember in verse 423, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Jesus doesn't want a sandwich. He doesn't want his disciples to have excuses. He wants them to respond to the truth that he was offering. This living water was the forgiveness of sin and the re of, uh, rebellion and disbelief. 
Jesus is explaining the sower, as he explains, was to share the truth so that the reaper could come through and gather up the believers, all rejoicing together. And see, farming in general is successful when sowing is thoroughly completed, which then allows for the reaping. Jesus wanted the disciples to see the souls of the Samaritan people in the place they live, like they would see a harvest in a field ready for the weeping, reaping now. In a book, Christian Mission, in the Modern World by John Stott and Christopher Wright, Stott writes a captivating thought in, chapter, in, the, ch in the chapter on mission. So just sit back and listen to this. It's kind of long, but I just, it's just so good. Here, then, are the instructions of Jesus. A great commandment, love your neighbor, and the great commission, go and make disciples. What is the relation between the two? Some of us behave as if we thought them identical, so that if we share the gospel with somebody, we consider we completed our responsibility to love him or her. But no, the Great Commission neither explains nor exhausts nor supersedes the Great Commandment. What, is, what it does is to add to the requirement of neighbor love and neighbor service a new and urgent Christian dimension. If we truly love our neighbor, we shall without a doubt share with him or her the good news of Jesus. How can we possibly claim to love our neighbor if we know the gospel but keep it from them? Equally, however, if we truly love our neighbor, we shall not stop with evangelism. Our neighbor is neither a bodiless soul that we should love only, their soul, nor a soulless body that we should care for its welfare alone, nor even a body, soul, isolated in community or isolated from society. God created the human person who is my neighbor as a body, soul, in community. Therefore, if we love our neighbors as God made him or her, we must inevitably be concerned for their total welfare, the good of their soul, their body, and their community. This is a lot from the book, I get it. But I believe it gets to the heart of what Jesus was trying to teach the disciples and as he teaches us. You see, the kingdom of God is built up with whole persons, with souls, bodies, and saved into community as God uses us. Like the disciples, we have a preoccupation to become distracted from what, what we've been called to do in his kingdom of building, do we not? So why is this? Perhaps there is a tendency to not feel prepared to share the gospel adequately. Perhaps, um, or maybe we've received uh, enough satisfaction to, to serve another person, to aid them physically, yet we fail to consider their spiritual, the spiritual implication of those who don't have personal relationships with Jesus. Personal priorities that are most important to us can set us back from the mission that God has called us and invited us into. Naming things like tiredness, children, limited schedules, hunger, caring, and caring for children can all stifle the missional response. Yet if we read what Jesus says, and we really take it to heart, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work by the free gift of grace, we are saved into these words that Jesus speaks of because we are in him and he is in us. In other words, Ephesians 2.10 explains what our newness of life as Christians should look like. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
Jesus knows that we have inadequacies. We are limited with our abilities to share him. We are tired. We are dealing with children. I could, I could strap that all on right now. But he will accomplish the work and cause us to partner with him. So go take a nap. And then get up and think about who you're going to connect with for coffee and share what God is doing in your life. Love your children and ask the Lord to save them with great anticipation as you disciple them with the Lord's patience when they don't obey you. Whether you're a sower or a reaper, both call for rejoicing because you are doing the will of the Father for the glory of the Son who saves. I have a story that um, I'd been suppressing the Spirit and he kept, he kept prompting me to reach out to uh, one of my coworkers. He's an, an early 20s man who is going through a lot and I could see it and he had already kind of confided in me a little bit but I just kept, kept pressing it back. But the Spirit overtook me and he really just, he, he just said, this is what I'm calling you to do. I want you to be faithful to this. So I, I got his phone number. We exchanged it. He lives in Barrie. And I said, listen, I want to get together. I want to get to know you. I want to get, let's have some, go have some breakfast. And he's, he wanted to do it. And so next week, we're going we're gonna to get together. And by God's grace, I'll be able to share what God is doing in my life. And he'll save him. But at the very least, I get to interact with somebody because of what Jesus has done in my life. So Jesus sees the person. Jesus sees the harvest because Jesus is the Savior. So we return to the story of the Samaritan woman after this interlude with Jesus and his disciples. Imagine this woman. She's entering the town knowing who she is, knowing that Jesus loves her. Her identity before meeting Jesus was potentially what the town people were going to see as they walked in and, 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 and recognizing her as immoral and impure and spiritually unclean. But the truth was contrary. She was on a Godward mission. Her testimony of being known by the Messiah and forgiven was the power that God supplied her as this truth ignited the community of the town to believe. You see, in John 17, 20, it says that I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe me through their word. So Jesus wants people to believe in him through what she was saying and what he had done for her. And they did. John recalls that many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. You know, it's astonishing to think that that simple line and the truth that she was sharing, many believed and were drawn to real worship. The town didn't go to their altars or their idols, or even to one another to worship and discuss what was taking place and add their own conjectures. They wanted Jesus. They wanted God. We can reflect back to verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. As these individuals, and there may, there may have been some who were on the fence or even curious about this person of Jesus, yet the woman had claimed him to be the Messiah, or at least her, her hope was that. There was a question that she asked the group, but, but there, was a, there was a positive implication that she was hoping for. But they still wanted to see for themselves. But what's, what's amazing is as they interacted with the person of Christ 
and encountered his teaching and his very words, many more were convinced. Verses 40 through 43 reads, So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. They were convinced. More importantly, they were changed from the inside out, and the Spirit of God caused them to believe and to know that this man was the Savior of the world. According to the commentary, this was Jesus' first large-scale missional harvest, demonstrating how universal his scope of salvation was. The timing of all of this was providential because Jesus was traveling to Galilee after the Passover. But he made the time to stop in Samaria. And he spent time with the Samaritans. And they encountered a work of God. A great work of God. That, that it, you know, the, the number, there's no numbers. It just says many believed. And then the text reads that after two days he departed for Galilee because no prophet has honor in his hometown. The reason he said this is there were some Galileans that, that experienced what he had done in Jerusalem and welcomed him. What the text doesn't indicate is if there was a sense of worship, true worship, so Jesus, he's off again to save because he's the savior of the world. As we read, as we've read in the verses 27 through 42, and in particular 41 through 42, we see a, a, a divinely ordained movement of God where Jesus is glorified and many lives are saved within a short period of time. The spiritual landscape was changed and unified under Christ as the living water, as it washed through the city, as he revitalized souls. As Jesus was ushering in his kingdom, we have an early picture of revival. We see later in Acts chapter 2 another revival when the Holy Spirit descends on the, the disciples at Pentecost. And Peter gives a sermon where well over 5,000 repent and believe in Jesus. And they, they see them as their Lord and see, them as, see, see him as their Lord and as their Savior. And as I was working through this text, I began to, to think about the revival that has happened in America over the past 250 years. And we've seen incredible movements. And I'm not going to get into the, the logistics or the theology or anything that, that was it true, did it really happen. But I want to I just lay before your feet a what if. A what if that's happening now? Because we have seen dramatic conversion over the past 250 years. In an article that I read, A Brief History of Spiritual Revival and Awakening America by Patrick Morley, he gives a revival survey dating back to the 1700s. And I'm not going to go through all the stories. These are, these are real stories that happen. But what I want to get to are the 10 unique characteristics of spiritual revival that Morley compiled through his research. And I'm going to go kind of fast for the essence of time. But number one, timing. Revivals emerge during, these, during times of spiritual and moral decline, which leads to intense prayer. Number two, prayer. God puts a longing into the hearts of many to pray for revival. Number three, the word. The preaching of and read or reading of God's word brings deep conviction and desire for Christ. Number four, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes people to a spiritual depth that they could not achieve on their own. Number five, conviction. Affected sinners are inconsolable except in Christ. 
glory for God. God receives praise, honor, and glory for bringing revival. Reformation and renewal, number seven. Revival produces lasting fruit. New ministries are founded and society expresses, experiences a reform of morals and more and more people convert. Manifestations. Manifestations like fainting, groaning, and miracles vary by culture and denomination. Number nine, messy. Revivals are messy. Controversies swirl about miracles, abuses, excesses, suspicions, and theological disputes, to name a few. Number 10, cyclical. Revivals inevitably crest and decline. I don't know about you, but New England needs a revival. Vermont needs a revival. We, we see that the moral fabric of society in general is unraveling. It is an anything goes attitude. And we're, we're getting nowhere fast with all these ways in which we can now live as people. How can we plead? So, so what do we do? How can, how can we plead with God the Father to ignite our towns and cities with the gospel of Jesus Christ? The way the Samaritans experienced Jesus and were changed? One aspect that I want to emphasize begins with us individually that develops us corporately as a church. And I really appreciated the way Don Carson sums up this one, one of his points in an article he wrote for the Gospel Coalition where it reads, Examine your own heart. Fan the flames of personal devotion to Christ. Abundantly use the ordinary means of grace. That is, instead of relying on intensity, on the intensity of the revival, turn again and again to Bible reading. Prayer, self-examination, and confession, death to self-interest, a joyful focus on the cross, faithful evangelism, service, and eager anticipation of the glories yet to come. If instead you rely for your sustenance on the sweeping movement of the revival, ignoring the ordinary means of grace, you are likely to burn out in a frenzied pursuit of what is instantly gratifying, but not very nourishing. I'd like to see, I'd like to say that Cornerstone is facing that direction. I'd like to say that we're on the right track that we need some more imagination. We need some more precision on our focus. Imagine if we all were to take devotion to God and the mission of Jesus seriously all the time with sober minds. What might God do in our midst? Who might be saved? What joy it would be for us when the angels in heaven rejoice as one sinner repents and believes in Christ. That's what I want for Cornerstone. Colossians 3, 1 and 2 reads, If then you have been raised with Christ, see the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. The time is now to pray for the Holy Spirit to move in our families, our towns, our cities, and state to show off Jesus, to believe in and follow Him. One captivating story that was in this, this Morley article was the businessmen's revival of 1857 and 1858, just one year. And it says here, in, in 1857, the North Dutch Church in New York City hired a businessman, Jerome Lapinier, to be a lay missionary. He prayed, Lord, what would you have me do? Concerned by anxious faces of businessmen on the streets of New York City, Lanthier decided to open a church at noon so businessmen could pray. 
The first meeting was set for September 23rd, three weeks before the bank panic of 1857. Six attended the first week, 20 the next, then 40. Then they switched to daily meetings. Before long, all the space was taken, and other churches also began to open up for business prayer meetings. Revivals broke out everywhere in 1857, spreading throughout the United States and the world, sometimes called the Great Prayer Meeting Revival. An estimated one million people were added to America's church rolls. One million people. And as many as one million of the four million existing church members also converted. I don't know where they're at today. I'll take a tenth of that. I think a tenth would be, no, I would, that would still fit in the population. What would that be like? In Bethel, in Randolph, in Barrie, 5% of the population to come to faith in Christ because of, of your testimony. What, God might, what, what, God, what, what might God do? But there's no doubt that Jesus is still building his church because we're here. And we've had baptisms. And we've had newness of, of belief. So for those in this room who have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus, he saw you in your brokenness and saved you. He loves you. And here's some scripture to encourage you. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you're here and on the fence about the salvation stuff and belief in Jesus, he sees you too. And he loves you. I have two scriptures for you. And I'm so glad you're here. 1 Timothy 2.3 This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved. And should, yeah, desire all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And here's the second scripture. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall never perish. Believe in life and have eternal life. God gave us the Samaritan woman at the well narrative to show us our skeleton, to show that our skeletons hold us back from real worship. Real worship. Yet the living water that Jesus offers is the truth that refreshes and hydrates our soul and saves producing movements. This posture gives us more clarity to see the harvest and to act. As the Lord wills, may we have a deepened desire to God, for God to produce revival in our communities. And so as I conclude, we need to humbly labor in prayer that he revive with his living water. Second Chronicles 7.14 I'll read as, as I invite the, uh, the, the team up to, pray, uh, to lead us in worship. Second Chronicles 7.14 reads like this. If many, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be opened and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. I want to circle back to what you wrote, the skeleton that you wrote, and I want to take a minute as Dale plays the piano for you to reflect on and just to take a moment for you to pray in silence. Thanking the Lord for the confession, thanking the Lord for repentance 
and thanking him for the love that he has for you. And then I'll close us out and we'll sing worshiping in truth. So just take a minute and pray. amazing that that we get it we get to lay our skeletons at your feet as a as a church corporately there's some power here it's your power here lord working through us as a church lord i pray for all that written down or thinking about those things that keep us from your love that 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 hold us back from being called to the truth that, that has set us free, that, that gives us opportunities to speak truth into other lives. Lord, may we see that we are walking in your power because you see us and you love us. And you know there's a harvest here and you've called us and invited us into this time to engage with our communities. You've given us opportunities. May we act on them, Lord. And may we walk in confidence and power and boldness because of how you see us. There's no shame, there's no condemnation, there's, there's no room for that. I'm so thankful for Cornerstone Church and ERBC and, and the other churches that call up and lift up the name of Jesus and want to see their, their towns and hovels changed, that want to be influencers because you've influenced us with truth and life. May it start in our families. May it continue to waft out in our communities. And may we delight in this for your glory and your honor in Jesus' name. Amen.